Hello, and welcome to the Coral Catalog Podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. I hope that through this podcast, you can find choral repertoire that works for your high school and or middle school choruses. This is episode 21, and I'll be talking to Jay Reese Norris about his composition, Rise Above, which is available for SA. Jay Reese Norris has 25 years of teaching experience in the choral field, working with all ages, ranging from middle school through adult singers. Norris is a Delta State and Florida State grad and has received numerous teaching awards through MMEA and ACDA. Norris's choirs are eight-time performers at conferences on state, regional, and national stages. In addition to conducting, Norris is a composer with over 30 titles published with Music Spoke, Santa Barbara, G. Shermer, Cola Voce, and Lawson Gould. He's also a happy husband, dad, and furniture maker. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Jay Reese Norris about Rise Above. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coral Catalog. My name is Matthew Van Dyke, and I am the host of the show. Today, I am so excited to talk to Reese Norris. He is a conductor, composer. Uh, I'm sure that you have heard one of his compositions, or if not, it's coming to your town uh, because it, there is there are so many amazing compositions that he has. Um, and today, we're going to talk about Rise Above. So, Reese, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So before we talk about Rise Above, um, I want to get to know you and our probably our listeners want to get to know you a little bit more. So I'm going to ask you a couple of wacky would you rather questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. All right. The first one, the first one I have is, would you rather have more time in a day or more money in your bank account? Oh, I thought these were going to be easy. um time in the day excellent all right next one am i am i supposed to explain my answer you can if you want to with the composer composition woodworker dad of small children and part-time jobs with conducting outside organizations I, i feel like i don't have a lot of extra time um you can't take money with you when you die but <laughs> extra times you can yeah yeah all right next one would your would you rather have your only mode of transportation be a giraffe or a donkey donkey i gotta know why that one how do you ride a giraffe you just hang on to the neck for dear life and (laughs) i would tail in a a skateboard maybe i don't know All right, last one. Would you rather never be stuck in traffic again or never catch a cold? Cold. I'm very rural Mississippi. We don't bother with traffic very much. That's just not in the equation out there, rural yeah. Mississippi. <laughs> we can get out of Mississippi best we can, so there's not a problem for us. Awesome. Great. Uh, I appreciate you letting me take you down that wacky road uh, just to laugh and get to know you a little more. Um, okay, let's pivot a little bit and get to know maybe some more, some of your musical side. So who is another choral composer who you feel that you are influenced by? You know, that's a very interesting question. And actually it's not the first time that it's been asked of me before. And still to this day, I don't really have a great answer for that question. So I'm kicking this off with a bang. Um, there are a lot of composers whose music that I really love. Um, I, and certainly I'm sure you could listen to my scores and find parallels with other things out there. No problem. My music is not like avant-garde or anything, um, brand new. Um, but I, 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 I don't like my experience with choral music has to do with my teaching of it, writing, and then listening. I don't know. I love composers who write great piano parts, like Philip Sylvie, for instance, really enjoy um, uh, a, a piano part that could stand alone, put that sucker on Pandora by itself as a piano solo, like that kind of thing. I like uh, people who write um, melodies that are interesting. Um, And especially big nods to 
uh, music that where you find the harmony parts are not boring, where they feel almost as melodious as the melody. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of people who do all of those things, uh, but those are the, and this is, I'm just taking your question away and replacing it with these are the things that inspire me uh, to uh, do better when I write. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. That's that's phenomenal. I actually got the chance to talk to Philip Sylvie, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I'm sure everybody knows 900 Miles that is listening to this and whatnot. So that's a great example. Okay. Uh, I have one more before we start talking about Rise Above. Uh, and this is kind of an impossible question, um, but I like to ask it and make the guests kind of really think. So uh, what is your one piece of choral music that you could not live without? What's your desert island piece of choral music? I don't think there is one. I, and I started this when we were chatting before by telling you that I am not your, your your typical choral person. I love working with choirs. I love writing for choirs. But I also think that when the day comes and I walk away, I don't think I'll look back. I think that I have always been a, a dreamer. I have always been a next step thinker not in terms of organization, but, you know, I, I set high goals and then work to achieve them. And then instantly my mind goes to now what next, what can we, what can we next achieve? Um, and of course, a lot of good things come of that. You know, you can drive a program to do really great things and yourself to write great things from that mindset, but there is a downfall. And that downfall is a lot of times you miss the opportunity to enjoy the now. You know, you, there's no, you don't have those moments when you can just sit back and relish what you just took in. It always becomes of what comes next. Um, uh, and that mindset, though, I think is what's going to deliver me from having that mindset where I, when I retire from conducting or from writing, where I would look back with regrets or have those, you know, lonesome Friday nights wishing that I was conducting a concert. I don't think I'm going to have those. I think that I'll move on to whatever is next, whatever has been prepared for me in my next step of the journey. Um, and the same way I love, I love tons of music. Um, but um, I, there's not, there's not one song out there that I just um, live and die by. I will say the, the first choral piece that um, made me want to do choral music, um, I'm changing your question again, was uh, Beeble's Ave Maria. Um, I listened to Chanticleer sing it as a very, very young teacher uh, on repeat. That was my first real experience in choral music. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier today, that my first choral experience was in college. And so I didn't have that moment with that high school or middle school choral director that a lot of people had where they just thought, I just want to do this the rest of my life. I went to college and studied music, but not with the intention to teach. I never really in intended to teach. And it wasn't until I actually got into the classroom um, to do my student teaching, my internship, that I fell in love with the idea of teaching. So even then, I was not 100% sold, but that piece right there, as a really, really young teacher, um, I thought, I want to do something like that one day. That's excellent. I love that. I got to do that piece in high school for the first time, and that was, that was really, really incredible. Uh, we did not it was all of our guys classes combined together and we had a, a sizable amount of guys in there in our high school program and that was that was pretty pretty crazy to to get to do so i'm i understand completely how that <laughs> that can be transcendent all right let's pivot a little bit and let's uh let's start to talk about rise above and now a snippet of rise above by jay reese norris performed by the Hernando Middle School Girls Choir, conducted by J. Reese Norris. 
So uh, Rise Above is written for two-part SA ensemble. Um, is there any other arrangement voicing that I don't know about that uh, we should talk about here? No, except we could talk about it because I've had this conversation with my wife, who is also a choral director, that if time stood still and I had nothing else to do, there are a lot of songs that I would arrange for different voicings. And this is definitely one of them. Yeah. But that's the only thing now. So this is, again, for S.A. Um, the uh, text of this is so incredible um, and resonates with any age group, um, whether that is a middle school, elementary school, S.A., high school, S.A., community, S.A. Uh, it's so it, it just transcends throughout any age group. Uh, and it's all on um, the life of Joan of Arc. So uh, so it's an excellent different source of text besides Sarah Teasdale. <laughs> um, so, um, so the first question I have for you about Rise Above is, when did you write this piece? Um, I know on the piece itself, it, there is a commission note. So um, who was this commission for and how did it come about? One of my classmates uh, from the master's program at Florida State, her name is Shirley Glom and she teaches middle school in Virginia. And her middle school treble choir was selected to perform at the Virginia uh, State Choral Directors Conference. And uh, she reached out to me to write a commission for her choir to perform this piece at that special opportunity. And that was uh, 2017, I believe. So, oh, go ahead. About when she first got her first copy and they had learned a bit of it, they wanted to... Um, do like a, a phone call in so that I could hear. And my wife and I were on our way to vacation in um, North Central Arkansas. And we pulled over at a truck stop <laughs> so that I could listen in the car un, um, uninterrupted to their first iteration of the piece. I'm sure that's just so exciting to hear that first, that first go. Yes and no. In person, yes, 100%. On the phone, typically choirs sound like underwater choirs. <laughs> Oza, you just smile and you say, that was wonderful. You thought that, I thought maybe by the end of this pandemic, someone would come up with a format where the audio at the other end of a vocal, like a singing piece. Speaking is fine for whatever reason, but singing. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Um, okay, so I what I love most about this piece, like I said in the introduction to it, is the text. I think the text is just so interesting and unique. So what what is the origin of this text? Is this Joan of Arc? I, I, obviously, this is not Joan of Arc writing about Joan of Arc. So what or or maybe it is. I'm not I'm not quite sure. So what is the origin of this text? And how did where did you find it? And what made you want to set it, especially for your commission group? Right. Um, so uh, there's a bigger picture I'd like to sort of describe first. Um, and that is at, at one point I wanted to make a point to find stories of young people who were world changers while they were still young. And especially poignant if that young person never lived outside of their youth. Um, and the first version of that is a song that I wrote called Paper Crane. And Paper Crane is a story about uh, the story of Sadako Sasaki, who um, died of leukemia um, in Japan. Um, look that one up and read about it. She was, um, she, her, the story about her is what makes her pivotal and, um, and, and just a, an incredible young character. And, uh, and then of course, the third uh, was a text written by one of my former students with a piece called My Cage. And the text is one that I know that every college and high school and probably middle school girl can read and go, yes, yes, I totally understand that. Um, and then this one falls in the middle 
And uh, well, the funny story is, uh, it, it's a shame. Uh, I'll ask students these days, um, how many of you know about Joan of Arc? And it's, it's a shame how few people know. And I say, do you remember in that scene in Frozen, the cartoon, when they're singing that the window is open, so is that door? And they're like, yes. And I said, do you remember? She jumps up really high and says, hang in there, Joan. And they're like, that's her. So, yes, that's how people know Joan of Arc these days. Anyway, I came across stories of Joan of Arc, and um, I was really just um, awestruck by some of the things that I had read. For once that I read that she was the only, and still to this day, the only person to be the supreme commander of a country's military at the age of 17. And she was a girl in the 1400s. That's insane. You know, if we know anything about women's rights back then, I mean, it was just really incredible story. But what pushed me over the top was Mark Twain. Um, he spent about 10 years of his life studying the life of Joan of Arc and wrote about it at the end. And he concluded that Joan of Arc was, and I'm going to misquote, but the idea is the same, um, without doubt, the most powerful and influential human that has ever lived. I was like, wow. And so um, some of the texts that you see in that uh, song are uh, quote, quotes that Mark Twain said about her. There are a few lines of original text. And then at the end of the song, um, the line where she was captured and they uh, tried to coerce her into giving up her beliefs and she responded with the part at the end, one life is all we have and we live it as we believe, but to sacrifice you are and uh, it's a fate worse than death. And I thought that one line that she provided was um, needed to be in there. And there was another line, another uh, quote, and I don't know that it's not an urban legend, it's, but it's reported widely that when she was um, tied to the stake, they asked her if she had one last thing to say. And she said, yes, please tell the man in the back holding the cross to hold it up high so I can see it over the flames. I was inspired by that. I didn't use that text in the actual song, um, but I definitely, if you, if you hear a choir perform it well, you will sense that fire in the way the, the song is, is composed. So that's really kind of where it was born from. I think that you need to write all that down and put that in the score <laughs> because that is so important. That changes everything about, I almost, I almost regret doing this two, two years ago and not knowing that because now knowing that it would have been completely different. So I go, go on to music spoke and put that in <laughs> needs to be there. I'm right. Up. Yeah. Right. Right now. Um, that's amazing. That's so, wow. That's, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know nearly as much as I feel like I should about Joan of Arc. And now that it just changes everything about this piece and how important it is and how, uh, just courageous it needs to be in order to do it. So yeah. that's, that's so, that's amazing. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I would talk about Joan of Arc now forever uh, if, if I could for the rest of the time. Before we leave her, you know, I'm thinking about uh, all the um, students that we have that are in need of direction in their life. And they instinctively, innately look for someone that inspires them and aspire to be like them. We're all guilty of being a chameleon at times. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity to present someone like that for these students to look up to. Agreed, agreed. All right, we can move on now. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna pivot a, a big a big turn. Um, the 
several times that I've heard this and, uh, you know, there's a recording of you and your students in uh, doing this piece on YouTube and which has kind of become, you know, the reference recording, at least that I used in that. And I heard percussion in that uh, recording. Is there notated part? Is there a specific feel that you, how did you describe that percussion part to that percussion player? And how would you then tell the next conductor to tell the next percussion player? That's a great question. Um, and there's a, there's a deeper rooted question in that. Um, I make a joke when someone breaks out a metronome, I'm like, put that thing away. When I'm conducting, everything is rubato. Everything. <laughs> and what I really mean by that is I love for an, a conductor to have some artistic license. I, I, I venture to say that, that choral music is perhaps the greatest art form. Um, and in that, because it is a performing art, it is a newly created art piece every single day which is unique. And then I think we have an, an advantage over our instrumental friends where they might have advantage in terms of uh, a more diverse color palette in their tone. We have text and nothing beats that. So it truly is, I think, the greatest art form out there. And I want a, an inspired conductor to have a little bit of artistic license. Well, um, I, I give you an example. I got an, an email today from a from a conductor who's doing a different piece that I've written called Endless Song. And uh, the question was, I listened to a recording and it sounds like measures blah, blah to blah, blah have been repeated, but it doesn't show that in the score. Um, is there a newer version of the score? Is that something that I can just do? Um, and of course my answer is, you do you. Um, so back to answer your exact question, um, I did not write a, a percussion score. I provided it to the performing choir that commissioned it. And when she sent me a cell phone recording of their performance, she had added percussion because it felt right. And I listened to it and I thought, yep, that really, it, it's, it's good. It needs to be there. And so um, I, I found a percussionist and I said, sit down at the drum and let's, let's just play because sometimes those guys have a really good feel for what the song needs. Again, a little bit of artistic license. So I didn't really give much direction except when to play, when not to play. Um, and then it, it organically is born out of that. Great. <laughs> That's that. That's great. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into the piece. And I I think I, what I'm most excited to talk to you about today, being someone that wrote this piece, knowing the audience in mind because you taught that age group and you yeah. have and you know so much about that age group so this is the kind of the part of the program that i'm that i'm really excited about because uh every piece that i choose for my ensembles every piece that i recommend for anything else my brain goes to well what can that teach that ensemble what is it what is the thing that they need to know where you know where do they come from and where do they need to go so let's dive into that aspect with rise above so what do you believe that this piece, what musical concepts does this piece teach really well? Okay. You know, one of the things that, um, especially in adolescent uh, treble voices uh, that you find pretty quickly is that the middle of the voice is weak. And they usually have, especially these days with the, the pop influence, um, and, and theater uh, influences, they have a pretty good um, access to their chest and can get a good, pretty good resonance in that lower range. Um, and if you spend any time training them, you're going to find that at some point just above the middle of the voice, it will start to open up. 
and most of them have a a pretty beautiful um, upper middle to high um, but the middle part of the voice is pretty undeveloped um, and I, I think a lot of times it's because we don't write a lot of stuff for that middle part of the voice. And we don't write a lot of that stuff because they don't sing that well in that middle part of the voice. But being a teacher first, um, I thought that placing this um, right there in that middle range would give an opportunity to sort of develop something that <clears throat> the other literature we were working on wasn't going to develop. So that's one. Um, obviously, there is some low stuff too. Um, and then at the end, we let them open up to a higher piece with that descant. <clears throat> Syncopation is a good one. Um, and I think there's with the, with the text in mind, there's a lot of opportunity to create uh, longer phrases. Um, and because uh, I, I think the natural tendency is to sing little baby short phrases in this fast, upbeat, syncopated uh, but one could easily choose not to do that. Um, and then uh, if you're, especially if you have a younger treble ensemble, you know, the, I, I always believe in carefully and systematically introducing any musical concept, whether it's rhythmic literacy or melodic literacy, in this case, harmony. Uh, because it very carefully bounces back and forth between unison and two-part. And if you go through there, you are not going to find um, any harmony notes that are not approached by anything outside of stepwise. Um, so it's easy to find. You're not making them skip to dissonant pitches and things like that. Um, I think probably the hardest one is a repeated pitch where they really just desperately want to move into that melodic note. Um, and then, of course, uh, developing a, a greater sense of singing in harmony toward the end when you um, add that, that descant part. And it gives you the chance if you've got a, if, you're, if your choir is really getting it, you know, you could easily just take that descant SA and make it SSA. Um, or if you're like, these guys are rocking that two part and that's pretty much like maxed out, you could omit it. Or you could just have one kid jump up there um, to sing that, that top part and then let the other ones continue to do what you've just taught them to do. So that's some of the main concepts that I wanted to focus on when I taught it. That, those concepts are literally like, if you were to look two years ago at my, at my sequence plan, it was this is the one of the first uh, songs that I had them learn in the fall concert in their year. And I knew that what I was getting was that they were struggling with harmony, is that singing in thirds are really hard and singing. And but if you come at it for stepwise motion or oblique motion, you're going mm -hmm. to be more successful. And right. so I wanted that. I wanted something that I had also gone to a summer workshop that summer that had said, stop making these students sing in head voice all the time use their head you let them use their chest voice that's what they sing in the car that's what they sing that's where they speak so stop making them feel like choir is head voice land and pop music is chest voice land so right. everything that you said it allows them to use a chest voice it allows them to work what they know as choir land but bring it down into now let's develop that a little bit more and then the syncopation is attractive and so i all of those things like i'm so i'm just happy that you that you like listed out my plan you know that i didn't give you but you knew <laughs> yeah that's that's just incredible and and it's just so i i love the energy of it too that it, it even in this even in the slower section it doesn't feel yes it's legato and yes it feels very different than everything else but the pulse aspect of it never stops you still feel like you still feel that momentum to want to go and and right. and uh, and get to the next spot so yeah thank you like just in that section you're talking about my students call that the disney section uh, <laughs> when you get that i think that as a listener you hear that one life is all we have you somehow you know as a listener it's not going to end here mm. it's got to get it's it's 
as the students say, it's about to get crunk up again. <laughs> and so I know about that undulation. It's still there. You can feel it teeming, even though it's consonant and it's and it's in a major key. You can just feel a little bit of momentum underneath building yeah. the back big. I am now going to put in the uh, explanation or the, the description of the episode that there that this song uh, has a crunk it up section uh, that fly <laughs> leaf at the music spoke uh, side as well. <laughs> All right. Um, so I am. I've chosen this for my ensemble, whatever age group it might be. And every time I get to this question, I always have to say that this disclaimer, every group is different. Yes. Every group has their own, uh, uh, preconceived, uh, notion about choral music or that they have sung this, the, this kind of music or this style and they enjoy it, or their literacy is in this level. So I'm going into this question with those disclaimers in mind, but you are on the first day of giving this piece to your ensemble, your, your two-part ensemble. Where do you start? Where do you hook them in that first day? You know, as a teacher, that we, you have to hook them in those first two rehearsals or they, you want them to say, when can we sing Rise Above again? So where do you start? That's actually a really good question. Um, and it's one that probably every conductor thinks about on every single song they're about to introduce. Um, this may surprise you, but I've actually only conducted that piece one time. The recording that you've uh, seen on YouTube was the only time I've conducted it. Um, my wife has conducted it before, um, but a couple of times since then. And I think that when I did it, I did it chronologically. Um, uh, did that uh, at the beginning, speaking those syncopated patterns in um in with, without note, just in the rhythm. But I think that if I were introducing it now, I would probably go to, to the part that you might call the refrain. I rise above and fetter and three, get those rhythms and those, it feels um, like a melodic structure that sounds not unfamiliar to them. Um, and I think that's the part that hooks the, um, that hooks the young singers. And if they're especially a sensitive group, you might could start at the bridge. Um, if, and especially if you, if you were, before you introduced the actual music, if you maybe did a little project on the life of Joan of Arc and had them really uh, dig into all she was and why, while we're still talking, 700 years 600 700 years later about someone a, a girl who died when she was 19 years old there's a reason for that um you know do a project on that if you did that then i might consider starting at the bridge because those are actually her words and i think that it would have like a meaningful um connection to them uh, before i jumped into the the more upbeat and rhythmic parts i think the bridge is uh rhythmically the most straightforward but the right. beginning and the refrain as you would call it are i um they have that appeal i think but yeah. i i agree with you i think that this is and i i feel sometimes that i get very scared about doing those kinds of things those project based kinds of things because of the amount of rehearsal time that we have you know and this the next concert coming up but this is I, I feel that this is one of those things that it's a social emotional uh, part of these students that if they can relate to someone, as we've been saying, like to a Joan of Arc, that they yeah. feel validated in their world. Um, and that will I, maybe save time on the back end. I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever, but, you know, finding the character in the piece that we feel that maybe sometimes we have to sprinkle into the end because now the notes and rhythms are there, but maybe that's front loaded. I, I think that you're on to a, a big idea in that there is certainly some portion of our job where we almost are like salesmen when we present pieces to our choir. We obviously present them because we find them of value and we like them. And we want our singers to like them because they'll respond musically if they do 
and it'll just be a happier social situation if everybody is on the same page. But if you took time to do a project and everybody was like, wow, I mean, wow, what a person, you know, you might have them before one note is ever sung. I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Now, I know that you said that you have done this piece once, but I'm sure that you have heard other choirs do it. I'm sure they have sent you questions or recordings or anything like that. Um, so every choir, again, the disclaimer is still in effect. The force field is in effect that every yeah. choir is different. But are there any pitfalls that you find in various recordings of this or various performance of the performances of this, excuse me, that you could kind of give us a yield sign and maybe some tips and tricks before we potentially run into those potholes? Um, I think the song is pretty straightforward. The, the, the only thing, and this is just kind of an obvious one, when you have a piece that is extremely syncopated, not everything is syncopated <laughs> and then differentiating between things that happen on the downbeat versus the, uh, the upbeat. Um, sometimes I've, I've heard choirs make um, some easy to make blunders where they syncopate things maybe that weren't supposed to be syncopated. Um, the, you know, one thing that I think that um, my biggest, and this is not really a warning, but an encouragement is that you know as performers we work so hard in the in the rehearsal setting to um make sure that every vowel matches and every consonant is crisp and every um every note and syllable is nuanced and every phrase is shaped and every entrance is together every release is very crisp and unified and, 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 and stand nice and tall, hands down by your side, 10 nice and tall, take a deep breath. You know, it's just like choral robots by the time we actually perform. Um, and I, I think that performing like that, you miss the whole thing altogether. I mean, one of the biggest problems they had with Joan of Arc was because she wouldn't dress like a girl was supposed to dress. <laughs> and they were like, put on girl clothes. And she's like, I'm not doing that. You know, that doesn't seem consistent with the buttoned up, hand hooked, you know, music from the nunnery kind of thing. So I, I think that the one thing that choirs often miss is allowing that which young singers can provide. We'll often laugh, you know, you watch them in the hallway and they're so incredibly energized and they're so facially expressive and they're throwing their hands around and they're laughing and they're talking and they walk in there and they start singing and all of it goes away. And I can never figure that out. I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to, to remove that which makes middle school or high school people special um, in order to make music. I want to use that. And I think that if Joan of Arc were watching just what she would ask for, be passionate, move your body, get your hands away from your side and do something with them. Throw them up in the air, shake them, give them the bird. I'm just give them the bird. <laughs> you might say that. I don't know. <laughs> I love that. I just, I so love that. I think, and I, and it, it is so clear that those things are in your composition. You know, the fact that this is so much in the chest voice or so much in the middle voice and not typically, you know, and not, or rather atypically not in the head voice or not in, um, you know, as metered as, may, as maybe other pieces are, but it has that syncopation aspect. And that, and so I, I see that all over the place and, um, that's so I think that's a, an important thing to highlight for your students. So I'm right. I'm right on your page. Okay, this is the last question that I have for you about rise above. Um, and, and it's another impossible one. Um, <laughs> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> what is your favorite thing about this piece? Hmm. I, uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story. One of my dear friends, 
we, she and I have worked together for two decades now. Um, she has commissioned um, a couple of pieces, um, a song uh, called Misericordia and another one called The Crossing. And uh, The Crossing was written in memory of her late mother who had passed away. And, um, you know, she asked me very soon after her mom died if I would write a piece in her mom's memory. And I told her that I would be honored and secretly terrified. This is just the kind of thing you can't screw up. You know, you got to get it right. And she said that one of her mom's little old lady friends had written a poem about her mom. And she wanted to um, send that to me so I could look at it and perhaps use it for at least the majority of the text of the piece. And so she sent it to me and <laughs> it was not good. It was just not good poetry. And I don't doubt the heart and the sentiment, but it was just so anti-musical. I tried and tried and tried. And I finally had to go back and say, I just can't, I can't do it. Is there anything else that would suffice? So we had an idea and a, and a specific scripture that was meaningful to her. And I went to a living poet friend of mine and said, can you do something with this? And that's where the text came from, from the crossing. And that was, that was a, a you know, I, I think a pivotal moment for me because I realized that I had crossed the Rubicon, that I was no longer able to write without a text that not just was meaningful to the intended audience, but if it didn't like have some sort of impact on me, if it didn't cause me to feel emotion, then I just couldn't do it. So I, for this piece, um, I love fun it is for the students to sing and I love to watch them perform it. And I, I, I like the, the groove that it provides and I love the beauty of the, the bridge and I, and I love the big climax with the descant, but I just can't get past the text. For me, uh, that is you know, the, the most important part not to impugn my own work, but it really is better. <laughs> That's excellent. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. <laughs> All right. So as we wrap up today, uh, I just have two more questions for you and they're really more about you and the future. So, um, what are, um, some exciting projects that are on the horizon for you? Are there any com um, compositions that we should look out for um, that are going to become available pretty soon or um, ones that you're commissions that you're particularly excited to write? What's on the horizon for you? So a couple of things in terms of uh, commissions uh, that I'll mention. One of the things my wife and I founded a community-based youth and children's choir program um, called Coro Rio. And uh, after year one, we started an adult ensemble. So right now we have six choirs that um, all meet on Tuesdays every week. And um, one of the things that we used to do was a gala. And part of that gala where they would do a silent auction. And to do my bit, I would um, commit a commission as a gift to the organization, which they would then auction off. Uh, you and I have a mutual friend, Will Brown. Uh, a couple of years ago, he bought that commission. And from that commission came a song called Kaleidoscope, which actually was the song that singers from the Westminster Choir sang at their wedding as a surprise to his wife, Katie. Um, but the most recent one was bought by one of the members of my adult choir, who um, is a poet and basically told her husband, I want at least one of my poems set to music before I die. And so he bought the commission and she shared some and one of them, when I read it, I was in tears instantly. Um, I won't give too much away, but it's called A Magnet's Ways and it's an SATB piece. And again, the text is like profound. And um, I worked really hard to marry the text and the music together. And it's a piece that my adult choir is working on now that will premiere this spring and then it'll be available. 
And in the future, there is a residential um, community in the town that I'm in for um, uh, mildly mentally challenged adults. It's a residential campus. They come and they live there and they work and they worship and they live and they fish. And it's just a neat little environment. And they have a singing group called the Miracles. And the Miracles have traveled the world and sung for just about every president that's been alive in the last 50, 60 years. And they're just a neat group. And um, they have decided that it's time for a new theme song. They had a song written about 25 years ago called We Are the Miracles. And they've commissioned me to write a new theme song for them. So super excited about that one as well. And beyond that, in the wood shop, building dining room tables and whiskey cabinets and everything you can imagine. Love that. Love that. That's so exciting about the about all of those projects that you're uh, that are on the horizon for you. Thank you for sharing. We'll definitely look hopefully look for those things that, that come out soon. OK, this is my last question for you, and it's more for our viewers, our listeners. Um, if our listeners are interested in getting finding out more about you or getting in touch with you, um, what is the best way to get to you? I'm glad you asked that uh, just because, um, and I'll give you a little backstory. Um, people who know me as a, a musician um, outside of my own circle of uh, close friends here, people outside of this area that know me, most of them know me um, because of my connection to my middle school choirs um, performances at conventions or whatever. Uh, and so people associate me often with young treble singers. Um, and, uh, I do enjoy writing for those, but, um, a, a large majority of my commissions over the past, I'd say four or five years have been by SATB courses, either in all state or a lot of colleges have, um, um, commissioned me to write for them. And the problem with that is. Um, when I'm outside of this area conducting, typically it's younger singers. If it's an SATB, they're probably too young to sing a lot of the stuff that I've written for the collegiate voices. And a lot of times it's the younger treble voices. And so I don't have an opportunity as often to be outside of my home circle conducting my own SATB stuff. I have tons of opportunity to do my treble stuff, but not the SATB. So there's a lot of stuff out there that is similar in, uh, I would say, um, in quality as the treble, but um, fewer people know about it. Um, so in my website is jreesnorris.com and you can um, see the listing of all the, um, the compositions that are out there and all listed by voicing as well. Um, treble, tenor bass and uh, mixed Great. Contact form on there too, Matthew. Oh, excellent. Great. Awesome. Well, Reese, I just want to take an opportunity again and just thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today about Rise Above, about teaching, about uh, you know, every everything that we that we got into. Um, and uh and again, I'm just so grateful that you took the time to talk to me and uh, and share with our listeners more about rise above and your other compositions um, that I hope that they will look into. So thank you so much again. Matthew, it was an honor for me to be on your podcast and I've enjoyed our visit very much. Thanks so much for listening to the Coral Catalog. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Jay Reese Norris. Please make an effort to explore more of Rise Above and Reese's other compositions to see if any can fit into your programs or curriculums. While you're here, take a second to hit that subscribe button and follow the Coral Catalog so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Let me know what you thought of the show, too, by writing a review. And most importantly, share this resource with other choral directors and choral lovers. We work better when we work together. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Coral Catalog.